0: Well, it's uh, the first time this semester we uh, have the uh, privilege of hearing from our president, Dr. Stan Gadey. Uh, Stan will, yeah, that's that's entirely appropriate. Uh, Stan will be come on up here, Stan. Come on up. Come on up. Here. <laughs> I uh, I want to say a prayer of uh, of Thanksgiving for uh, this man and ask God to bless him and use him as he speaks to us. Uh, the trustees, uh, when they called him to be our president, simply recognized what God had already done. And he is appointed here by our Lord. And he uh, deserves and needs our prayers and, uh, and our encouragement. Uh, I'm so grateful, Stan, that you're our president. So let's pray. Father, thank you for calling him. Uh, to lead us in the way of Christ, to uh, help us figure out what it means to uh, get an education as Christians. Oh, Lord, give him everything he needs in wisdom, in joy, in faith, and in love. And Lord, speak to us through him as he speaks to us today. In Jesus' name, Amen. Thank you, Ben.
1: Well, um, I want to begin with a couple of readings. The first from the book of Psalms, uh, from chapter 62. And the second, just a couple of verses from Matthew. Uh, You'll especially recognize the second, I think. Psalm 62, beginning with verse 5. I wait quietly before God, for my hope is in Him. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress where I will not be shaken. My salvation and my honor come from God alone. He is my refuge, a rock where no enemy can reach me. Oh, my people, trust in him at all times. Pour out your heart to him, for God is our refuge. From the greatest to the lowest, all are nothing in his sight. If you weigh them on the scales, they are lighter than a puff of air. God has spoken plainly, and I have heard it many times. Power, O God, belongs to you. Unfailing love, O Lord, is yours. Surely you judge all people according to what they have done. Then from Matthew. One day Jesus was walking along the shore beside the Sea of Galilee. He saw two brothers, Simon, also called Peter, and Andrew, fishing with a net, for they were commercial fishermen. Jesus called out to them, Come, Be my disciples, and I will show you how to fish for people. And they left their nets at once and went with him. So, Dr. Gady, how do you like being president? That is, without a doubt, the question that I have gotten more often than any other since July 1, when I walked into the president's office. And it's an interesting question, actually. In fact, I'm always tempted to answer it with one of my own, which is, which presidency do you mean precisely, since this job is so dramatically different from one moment to the next? But that wouldn't be nice, nor would it give people the right impression. So I simply smile and say, very well, thank you, very well indeed. And that is, in fact, a truthful answer, but not a complete one. And it seems to me that this might be the right time to ask it once again, but with a bit more seriousness. I am about to be officially installed as the president, after all, in just a few weeks, to which you are all invited, by the way. It's going to be a big deal, apparently, with a special chapel on Friday, January the 25th, the formal inauguration being the next day, Saturday the 26th, and then an inaugural ball on Saturday night. Did you hear that? An inaugural ball. Isn't that something? I mean, when I went to Westmont, we couldn't even dance on or off campus. But now the new president gets an inaugural ball. Are we sliding into the abyss or what? Anyway, you should not expect much from me, with given how Westmont stunted my growth at a particularly crucial time in my own development. But we're going to have a good time. Inauguration or no, uh, I've been president now for half a year, and that raises the question, why do we hold an inauguration halfway through the year? (laughs) Why not do it at the beginning of the year, when the president is brand new and not already worn out? Haven't a clue, actually. Takes a lot of planning, I know that, and this is the way it's done at most colleges these days, I know that too. But it still seems a little odd, doesn't it? Maybe it gives the trustees time to change their mind. You know, if the guy really fouls up in the first few months, you can cancel the inauguration and get a new president. Anyway, it's a mystery. I don't ask why, I just enjoy it. That's my motto here. But, but, how's it going? That's the question. Or as it's usually framed, how do you like being president? And turns out that's more, more of a complicated question than you might imagine. Or as Dr. Mullen would say, it has many layers to it. There is layer number one, for example, which is simple and truthful. It's going well. I'm enjoying it. But more importantly, it feels good. It feels like a fit. It even feels right in some sort of mysterious way. And, of course, it's just an enormous privilege. Simple as that. Westmont has a better combination of people and pro- programs and purpose than any college I know, and I am quite serious about that one. The quality of the people here, students and faculty, staff and trustees, is really quite extraordinary. And when you combine that with the importance of our mission, the purpose of this college, well, it's a privilege to be here in any capacity. And certainly an honor to be in the post of president for any amount of time. So, that's answer number one. Feels good, feels like a privilege. But, there's a second answer, a second layer, so to speak, which is a bit more complicated. The truth is, the fact that I'm in a public role at all is something of a surprise to me and was so from the beginning. That's not quite right, by the way. My first aspiration, as some of you know, was to be the next Bob Cousy, one of the greatest basketball players of all time who played for the Boston Celtics and whom none of you have ever heard of, I'm sure. Anyway, that would have been a fairly public role. And, of course, I had the same delusions other kids had my age which meant that I dreamt about being everything from Batman to Superman, ran around in the house with a cape when I was a kid, from Lincoln to Leonardo. Leonardo was my dad, not DiCapri. But once I got over that, during my sophomore year in high school, for example, I was cut from the basketball team and it's hard to keep dreaming about being a professional ball player when you can't make the team as a sophomore. After that, my enjoyments turned to music, and eventually to the written word. And in both cases, what I wanted to do was create more than perform. I wanted to compose great musical scores like those written by the the Beach Boys and Peter, Paul, and Mary. That's sort of a joke, sort of. But I was pretty serious about folk music and would have loved to have come up with a few Bob Dylan tunes now and then. Actually, just one would have been nice. I also enjoyed writing and was better at it than music, though what I really liked most of all was poetry, and I could just never really get the hang of it. The point is, what I saw myself doing was creating things that would probably be performed by others. I would be the inventor, so to speak. Others would make it public. But things kept messing up the picture. Failure in the first place. I not only failed at basketball, but my music was pretty mediocre as well. But secondly, opportunities kept clouding the picture too. I remember being asked to be the president of my youth group at church, for example, and being completely stunned by the request. The problem wasn't my faith, it was my interest. I didn't have any. And it took my pastor pulling me aside and pulling out all the stops to convince me to take this responsibility on. And the same same thing happened again, right on through high school and then into college. I'd end up in these public roles, and not entirely know why. But then, once I got there, kind of enjoying them. Perhaps the most obvious example of that was becoming a professor. Frankly, when I went to grad school, after I graduated from Westmont, I was simply pursuing a line of study that I really enjoyed. Nothing more, nothing less. And in order to keep studying it, one had to go to grad school, which I did. But the goal wasn't to become a professor, it was to pursue certain questions that interested me to enter a conversation with other scholars and to see what they were thinking about those same questions. But then one day, while I was working on my PhD at Vanderbilt, a terrible tragedy occurred. Judy became pregnant. Yes, we were married, but no, (laughs) this was not in the plan. Indeed, it was a huge problem because she was our sole means of survival and support. Still is, actually. But, that meant I needed a job quickly, which eventually led me to begin teaching. First at the University of Tennessee and then at Vanderbilt itself. And of course, it didn't pan out on the financial side because you get paid so little as a part-time faculty member that it hardly kept us alive. But, it was worth it. Not because of the money, but because of the job. I discovered that I loved teaching. Absolutely loved it. Loved my students, loved my subject, and loved bringing those two affections together and eventually enjoyed it so much that I decided to make a career out of the combination. But it was a surprise to me. That's the point. As were most of the administrative roles that I eventually found myself in further down the line, whether in college or church or academic societies. In each case, I found myself there almost by accident, more out of interest in the thing itself than in the role that framed it. I became a teacher out of love of students and subject, remember, not out of teaching. And I became a provost pretty much for the same reason, caring about the cause of faithful scholarship. And I wanted to further it, first at Gordon and then at Westmont. And now I find myself as president of this fine institution. And again, the goal isn't being president. It's being a liberal arts college of the highest caliber, rooted in Christ, and just finding ways to bring that about. That's the goal. That's what's important. And that's what I enjoy doing, frankly, whether it's in the form of articulating the vision or imagining the future or raising the endowment or raising a little cane when things go wrong because I want things to go right because the work of this college is important. And it's that work, that joy, which is at the core of my calling, as I understand it. But now, here comes the problem. And with this one, I'm going to get pretty honest, so I'd appreciate it if you just sort of keep this one to yourself. Being president of a college, or anything else for that matter, is also a symbolic role. Which means that you're not only doing things, you're being something at the same time. Being president, to be precise. Which means that you are representing the college all over the place, all the time. And that means that you are treated differently, for better or for worse, all the time. Simply because you are the president. You are blamed for things that happened long before you arrived on the scene, but more than likely, at a place like Westmont, you are given credit for things that you didn't have anything to do with. I mean, I get parents whose children graduated from Westmont in 1983, telling me what a great job I did educating their children. And what are you supposed to say, anyway? Well, thank you, yes, I was there in spirit, even though, in fact, I was changing my own child's diapers in New England at the time. You get the point. It's a problem. A big problem. In fact, for someone like me, who's easily embarrassed by praise of any kind, it is a problem. I just want to get back to the work at hand. But it's also a bit of a puzzle, a riddle, in fact, which would have had me completely bamboozled if it weren't for Mr. Clinton and the presidency, which he occupied just a few months ago. Let me explain that one. If any of you have visited our home over the last eight years, you would have seen something hanging on the wall over my desk. It is a plaque. Actually, it's two plaques about yay, yay big. One with an invitation to attend a breakfast at the White House, and the other a name tag with my name on it along with the signature of Bill Clinton. And it's up there on the wall, not because I'm a fan of Mr. Clinton's, but because eight years ago, I was invited to the White House for a prayer breakfast along with a handful of other religious leaders across the nation. How I got there is a long story and I don't have time to explain it and I think I did that last year anyway, but the point is I got the chance to meet the president, talk with him for a little while, get his signature and enjoy the moment, which I did. It was President Clinton's first year in office and there were high hopes about his presidency even among those who didn't vote for him, like many of those who were in the room that day. And so we listened to him asked our questions, got a private tour of the White House, and then came back to our homes rather pleased about having had the chance to meet the president and rather happy to place our little mementos on the wall as well, above our desks, reminding us of our time at the White House. But then things started to happen. Rumors emerged, stories spread. The name of Monica Lewinsky became a household word. And frankly, it was all rather embarrassing. Regardless of your political affiliation, because the president was acting like an errant child, a schoolboy who lacked proper schooling. And I remember walking by my desk one day in the height of the scandal and looking at the plaque on my wall, along with the president's signature, and thinking, I don't want that thing on my wall. I don't want it in my house, for goodness sake. And then I walked into the garage, grabbed a hammer, came back to my study, started to yank it off the wall, and then stopped and I looked at it one more time. The President of the United States invites you to the White House, it said. And I stepped back and I looked at the plaque once again and I said no, no, I will not take that plaque down because the event was just too much fun for one thing and I don't want to forget it, but because ultimately it wasn't about Bill Clinton. It was about the presidency, which itself is about a nation, which itself is about a community which holds a special place in my life. Not because we're perfect, we're not perfect, but because it's mine, my community, my country, my people, my history. It's part of who I am as a person and I'm grateful for it deeply. And I will not let the behavior of one man take away my memory of a special day in a special place in a special land. You see, the office and the person are not the same. That's the point. And that's the lesson I learned that day, thanks to William Jefferson Clinton. And the lesson applies not only to the American presidency, but to the Westmont presidency as well, along with the Westmont Professoriate, the Westmont student body, and any other officer role at any time, at any place. You see, one is a calling. The other's about the called. One is an invitation. The other's a response. One is an expectation, a hope for things to come. And the other is pretty much a question mark. And the question is, for any of us in any role, will we live up to the calling? That's the question. And at the beginning, no one knows, do they? No one knows. I read the passage from Matthew a few minutes ago, which describes the call of Peter and Andrew, by Jesus, to be his disciples, which we are likely to dismiss as a kind of peculiar calling, since it was Jesus making the call, and these were the first disciples after all. But that doesn't make the calling peculiar. It makes it normal, at least normal for those of us who are followers of Christ, because we are all his disciples in the first place. But we are also, all of us, responding to his call in our life whether we're students or faculty, parents or mentors, provosts or presidents. And in every case, we enter the calling with high hopes and huge question mark concerning about what will be down the road. Take Peter, for example. I mean, Peter is an interesting case. On the positive side, he quickly throws himself into his new role and proclaims not too many months into his tour of duty for all his disciples, or the, the disciples to hear, that Christ is the Messiah. Jesus asks the question, who do people say that I am? And Peter gives the answer without hesitation, you are the Messiah, the promised one. And things are looking pretty good for Peter. But then just a short time thereafter, when Jesus is trying to explain to his disciples what will happen to him, that he will be crucified and rise again on the third day, what does Peter do? Well, he's horrified at the idea. And he winds up telling Jesus that he's, he's wrong that such things surely won't happen to him. And Peter probably thinks he's being a nice guy here, just wanting to be a source of encouragement. But Jesus doesn't think he's so nice, and he winds up telling Peter, get thee behind me, Satan, which is putting about as much distance between the caller and the called as one can imagine. The point is, then, we enter into these callings, all of us, with high hopes and tons of ignorance. And our job, it seems to me, is to be grateful for the call on the one hand, but to keep our eyes fixed on the caller on the other. That's the only thing that will keep the calling in perspective, but it will also be the only thing that will increase our chances of getting to the hoped-for destination. You see, there are two temptations, I think, regarding my call. The one is to diminish it, the other is to elevate it and they are both rather subtle, I've come to believe. When I get embarrassed because people are lavishing praise on me as Westmont's president, I take it as a personality flaw, and others perhaps might take it as an act of humility. But it's neither. It's stupid. It's a misunderstanding of the calling, as well as the office. Look, why did I want President Clinton's autograph? Not because of the person, but because of the office. I mean, it could have been Bozo the Clown in that role that day, and I still would have wanted his autograph. And that's pretty important for Bozo to keep in mind. Any Bozo in any office. It's not about me, in other words. And it's not about you. It's about the calling. And it's especially about the caller. So, you don't take the praises personally when they're meant for the office. Why? Well, if you do, you're thinking too highly of yourself, for one thing but you may also be thinking inappropriately about the office as well. Think about the words of the psalmist, which we read just a few minutes ago. From the greatest to the lowest, all are nothing in his sight. If you weigh them on the scales, they are lighter than a puff of air, he says. In other words, compared to the caller, the calling is rather lightweight. It's a means to an end, not an end in itself. And the end is Jesus Christ, Preeminent in all things he is the one who invites us to follow him and he does so through all kinds of roles and responsibilities All are worthy because he has called us to them All are difficult because we are a fallen people serving in a fallen world and all are a puff of air Only for a time for a season after which the harvest comes along with the harvester And the only question at that point is, what did we do in our season? And that's the question before me as I start this new season as president. And that's the question before you in your season as a Westmont student or professor or whatever. And it's not the question that we like, is it? Not the preferred object of contemplation. What we like are questions about the call itself. And we run... All over the place asking that question of friends and ourselves and of God all the time. And God, well, God almost never gives us a clear answer. Not typically the one we want. Rarely the one expected. I remember one such moment of desperation in my life. Funny, but I can't recall the circumstances that brought on the desperation in the first place. Must have been some kind of disappointment at some time. I was in college. I do remember that. I know that simply because of the kind of typewriter that I used at that time. Remember typewriters? Bob Kuzi, and typewriters, there's a theme here. Anyway, whatever the reason, I was discouraged about my life and the direction it was going. And so I prayed and prayed, asking God to give me some clear direction about what he wanted me to do in the days ahead, which career to pursue, perhaps, what major to choose, more than likely, since I was forever bouncing around between history and religious studies and sociology. I can't remember. What I do remember pretty clearly, however, is what I did about it. And it's something that I have often told my students not to do, ever. And it shows a complete lack of wisdom on my part, not to mention faith. No current Westmont student would ever do anything like this, I'm sure. But, I got out my Bible, placed my hand on the cover, closed my eyes, and said, Lord... Please let me know what you want me to do. I need some direction. Then I opened up the Bible. Eyes still closed. Let my fingers drop to some random place and looked for my answer. Dumb, dumb, dumb thing to do. Which which, the Lord redeemed, interestingly, with a great, great answer. <clears throat> From Isaiah 9, verse 8. This is what the Lord says. In the time of my favor, I will answer you. In the day of salvation, I will help you. And what hit me right between the eyes were the words, my favor. In the time of my favor, I will answer you, says the Lord. Not the time of Stan's favor, but the Lord's favor. I will answer you. That's a promise I will help you, guaranteed, but it will be the time of my favor, when I want to, for the purposes I have determined. And quite frankly, those words, when I read them, felt like a kiss and a slap on the cheek at the same time. I don't know if you know what I mean here. My, my oldest daughter had one of those moments a few days after September 11th. I told you a few of you about it. She was, she was jogging and crying at the same time. She's an attorney in Silicon Valley, and they do that a lot these days just kidding. She was actually jogging and she was feeling a little overwhelmed by the events of September 11th, wondering about the future and wondering about her life in the midst of it. And then out of the blue came God's words to Job, just as clear as a bell. Where were you when I created the heavens and the earth? And for the first time, she said, she heard those words not just as an admonition, but as a comfort. And she rested. And she knew she had her answer. And that's how I felt that day when I opened my Bible and read the word of God as recorded to his servant Isaiah. In the time of my favor, I will answer you. And it was an admonition, no doubt about it, but it was a comfort as well. And I wrote the words down, or typed them actually, so I wouldn't forget them. And I closed the book and I went back to my studies, knowing in the depths of my being that what I needed was not clarity on the call, but confidence in the caller. And that's all I needed, all I needed. And that's as true for me today as it was a few decades ago. Look, friends, we need to get it straight. I need to get it straight. The presidency of Westmont is not some pinnacle in one's career, not some milestone to be achieved. The world may think that, but the world's full of beans or worse. It is, in fact, just one step further down the road with the one who says, follow me. It is a very worthy endeavor because he has called me into it. And it will be difficult because I am a sinner serving in a sinful world. Mistakes I make aplenty, guaranteed. But in the span of things, my presidency is little more than a puff of air, a limited season, after which comes the harvest. And then the question will be, what did I do in my season? What did I do? It's the question of the moment for me, obviously but I rather suspect it is the question of the moment for us all. So how's it going? Very well, thank you. I'm enjoying being president, but more importantly, feels good, feels like a fit, even feels right in some mysterious sense. And of course, it's enormous privilege just to be a part of this institution in any capacity. Still, that's not the important thing. The important thing is that it's one step further down the road with the one who says, follow me. And that's the only road I want to be on, now or forever. Let us pray. I wait quietly before God, for my hope is in Him. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress where I will not be shaken. My salvation and my honor come from God alone. He is my refuge, a rock where no enemy can reach me. Oh, my people, trust in him at all times. Pour out your heart to him, for God is our refuge. From the greatest to the lowest, all or nothing in his sight. If you weigh them on the scales, they are lighter than a puff of air. God has spoken plainly, and I have heard it many times. Power, O God, belongs to you. Unfailing love, O Lord, is yours. Surely you judge all people according to what they have done. O Lord, may our doings be pleasing in your sight. May we be faithful in these days, in this season at Westmont just as you have been faithful to us through Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. You are dismissed. Have a good day.